So this poor, poor, much maligned creature is called a sloth or sloth. And the reality is that the, the reason people pick on it is because it moves very slowly. Because when we hear the word sloth or sloth, I think I'm going to choose sloth? Sloth. Let's go with sloth. Um, when we hear the word sloth, we think of laziness. We think of just being really slow, not doing anything, not doing much. But I want to suggest that that's actually not the real meaning here. And actually, what we're going to talk about is about something slightly different to just laziness. And our story starts back in the fourth century with what are called the Desert Fathers. These were men who went out into the desert to be alone with God in order to spend time in prayer and meditation, in order to get closer to God, to get away from the world and all its temptations and attractions, and to do battle with their own souls. So one of the desert fathers says this, a monk's cell is the furnace of Babylon, in which the three children found the Son of God, but it is also the pillar of cloud out of which God spoke to Moses. So this is from a book called The Wisdom of the Father of the Desert by Thomas Merton, where he's gathered lots and lots of quotes from these early Christian monks and hermits. And one of the things that you get from reading it is this sense that they took very seriously the inward battle, the inward life, that often we perhaps neglect. That ultimately they felt it was really important to do the hard work in the silence and in prayer with themselves. Engaging with God as they sought to become more like Jesus. But obviously being in the desert has its particular challenges. And one of the things that the monks used to talk about was the noonday demon. And what they mean by that is when the sun is at its highest. These are guys who get up before daybreak. They would have perhaps had a very small breakfast and they wouldn't eat again until three o'clock. So in the middle of the day, they are tired they are hungry, and they are just overwhelmed by the heat of the day. And so they describe this noonday demon that creeps in and begins to whisper in your ear that there's no point. It's all a bit pointless. It's all too hard. It's all too difficult. Why are you bothering with all this prayer? It's so hot. Why don't you just have a little sleep? And this temptation to give up, this temptation to just stop worrying so much, just give in, is what the monks called acedia or achedia. And this is an ancient Latin word which comes from the Greek word, which comes back to the ancient Greek word, which means carelessness and indifference. So what I want to suggest is that sloth is not about doing nothing. It's about an attitude of just not caring, of giving up, of despair. Of hopelessness. And this makes a lot more sense because ultimately, when you look at the world around us, most of the damage is being done by those ambitious go getting types. Those of us with a tendency towards laziness pose little threat to the world around us. It's all these energetic types that we need to look out for. It's the Marion Rodericks of this world, (laughs) not the Dave Rodericks. So the point is that ultimately it seems slightly odd that this idea of sloth would be a sin, that ultimately the church would be warning against laziness. No, it's not warning against laziness and saying we all need to become busybodies. 
What it's saying is, be alert to despair. Be alert to the dangers of giving in. And in particular, we are prone to this at halfway points. A bit like the noonday demon. When we get halfway through something, the temptation is always there to just jack it in and give up. Anyone here who's written an essay will know that feeling of embarking with passion and enthusiasm and excitement about the topic. And shortly thereafter, you begin to care less and less and less about the topic. In fact, you can't believe anyone is interested in the topic. In fact, you yourself are no longer interested in the topic. And you can't be bothered to finish it. But you press on and hopefully get to the end of the essay. Funnily enough, most sermon writers experience this. You start full of enthusiasm, full of great ideas of how you're going to energize and enthuse the congregation about the topic. And after about an hour and a half of wrestling with it, you don't care. You don't think they're going to care. You're surprised anyone cares. And then you have to press on and make your way through it. Thank you. Thank you. Graham, I love you. So the danger of halfway, the danger of getting halfway through something and just thinking, what's the point? And chucking in the towel is something we see in the book of Exodus. Israel have been rescued from captivity in Egypt by Moses. They go through the, the, the Red Sea and there's this marvelous deliverance of God. And then they head into the desert and it gets a little bit tougher. And then they get to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain. And in Exodus 19 to 21, we have the giving of the book of the covenant and Israel all say, Lord, we'll do whatever you ask of us. We're 100% yours. We are your people. We will follow you to the bitter end. And then Moses goes up the mountain, and for the next 10 or so chapters, God and Moses interact with God giving Moses a whole series of instructions about how they can be that wonderful people of God. And then we get to chapter 32. So, Moses has been on the mountain talking to God, and we wonder, for these 10 chapters, what has been going on with the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain? How are they doing? What are they getting up to? How are they coping with the fact that Moses has disappeared? Well, we all know the answer. Not very well. So in Exodus chapter 32, we read this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, his de facto number two. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses. Who brought us here from the land of Egypt? So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and... Hopefully by asking, and hopefully they undid them first. Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from the ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and I love this, and they indulged in pagan revelry. I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad. I think the use of the word indulged in front of it gives us a clue that it's probably not a positive thing. So, here they are, bottom of the mountain, Moses, top of the mountain, and lo and behold, they've been waiting. The clock is ticking. And the question is, how long are they prepared to wait for God? And that's the question for all of us. How long are you prepared to wait for God? 
How long are you prepared for God to wait to, for God to answer a prayer, to change a situation, to get involved in something? How long are we prepared to wait for God? And the answer often is, not very long. <laughs> We're a generation that have been trained to desire the instant. And we have very limited reserves of patience for things. And so here we are, the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain. How long are they going to wait? Not very long. So what do they do? Well, the first thing they do is they give up. They kind of lose hope in the fact that Moses and God are going to lead them on to the next stage. So they say, we don't know what happened to this bloke Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. They give up on him. And then they do the next thing that we often do in this situation is you take matters into your old hands, own hands. So you've been waiting for God to do something. God isn't answering your prayer quickly enough. He doesn't seem to be making a difference quickly enough. He's not doing anything quickly enough. So what do you do? You try and take matters into your own hands. You try and make something happen. So they say, come on, let's make our own gods who can lead us. And then the third one, which is my personal favorite, is when things are tough and things aren't going the way you want and God hasn't turned up and maybe you've tried taking things into your own hands and it hasn't quite worked out, you go with distraction. You have a party. Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. In other words, you do something to distract yourself from your disappointment, from the fact that nothing seems to be happening, or when it feels too hard, it's easier just to pull out your phone and play a game. Just witter away the time. The writer William H. Williamon, who's written a brilliant book on the seven deadly sins called Sinning Like a Christian, and he says this, The great goal of life, communion with God, is forsaken by diving into a sea of triviality. I love that phrase because I'm guilty of it. I'm sure you're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of when rather than spending time in prayer with God or continuing to wrestle with God about the thing we're finding difficult or the situation we're finding difficult, we just think, oh, what's the point? Anacedia, the sin of sloth, the kind of sense of torpid despair, the sense of what the Germans called world weariness creeps in and we just think, oh, I don't think it's going to change. I'll put on a box set. That'll cheer me up. Let's see what's happening on telly. Let's get my phone out and see if I can win a game of Clash of Clans and cheer myself up that way or whatever it may be for you. But there is that sense in which rather than continue to engage with the God of the universe that can actually make a difference in the situation, we often try and switch off from it, turn away from it and dive into a sea of triviality. Because ultimately we give into this sense of there is no point. If sloth has a slogan, it would be there is no point. And if sloth had children, they would be despair and cynicism. So sloth, that sense of uncaringness, creeps into that sense of despair, which is how you feel, and then cynicism, how you then interact with the world around you. Despair and cynicism. There's no point. There's no point in me doing anything. There's no point in you doing anything. I can't change it. You can't change it. And lo and behold, I would argue cynicism is the defining word of the world around us at the moment. Nothing's going to change. Nothing we do matters. Nothing we do can make any difference. Whether it's climate change, the government, the NHS, pick a topic. The chances are you have a healthy or possibly unhealthy dose of cynicism about it. You don't think it's going to change. And these two things, despair and cynicism, I want to suggest are positively toxic to faith. Because despair and cynicism are the opposite of what God calls us to be and do. Despair and cynicism says there's no point, so why even try? 
An example of this is in the life of Judas. So one telling of the story of Judas is Judas was actually a revolutionary zealot. He was someone who wanted to see the overthrow of the Romans, and he thought Jesus was going to be the vehicle by which that would happen. That actually the Romans would be kicked out of Palestine, and as Jesus' ministry progresses, Judas becomes more and more and more despairing about the fact it's not going to result in the revolution he's hoping. And ultimately, that despair gives in to cynicism. Because he figures, this story only ends one way. We're not going to have the glorious revolution. Jesus is going to end up being arrested, and the Romans will kill him like they have everyone else. It's not going to work. There's no point. So the ultimate cynical act, I might as well make some money while it all goes pear-shaped. And so he agrees to betray Jesus because he thinks the, the outcome is inevitable anyway. So why not make a little bit of money on the side? A little bit of a side hustle for Judas, betrayal Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, happy days. Because the end is inevitable. There is no point. So Judas is a wonderful example of despair and how it leads to cynicism. Peter, however, is a slightly different picture. So Peter goes through a lot of similar emotions to Judas and he has his own dark days, as we all know. So that moment when he betrays Jesus, when in the courtyard, he turns you know, at the fire and says to people, I have no idea who this guy is. Never known him, never seen him before in my life. You've got me confused with someone else. No, I'm not from Galilee. I don't know him, etc., etc. And then that crushing sense of shame that he screwed up. So Peter had had his dark days. And the question is, how does Peter respond to that? Does he just chuck in the towel? Does he just say, I'm useless, the situation's useless, it's all hopeless, they've got Jesus, I've given up and walked away? Well, he doesn't. There's quite an interesting little bit in Luke. Because Peter, I would argue, always holds on to the sense of, what if? What if? And so when the women come to the the disciples and report that the tomb is empty... (laughs) the other men, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. The others, I want to suggest, had given in to despair, to cynicism, that sense of it can't be a miracle. There's no way that Jesus has risen from the dead. There's no way the tomb's empty. The women are just hysterical. This isn't real. This isn't true. Just write it off. Fob it off. Don't get excited about it. But Peter, Peter holds on to the sense of what if? What if the tomb is empty? What if Jesus, who had said he would rise from the dead, actually has? That's a game changer. So for Peter, he never stops daring to hope. Now, a fact you may not know about me is I'm a little bit obsessed with snorkeling. I absolutely love snorkeling. Wherever we go, I take my fins, I take my snorkel mask. It's very annoying but now that EasyJet have 14 different versions of how big a cabin bag's allowed to be. Um, if you've got a massive set of fins, or even if you're just going in a car, they take up a lot of space. But I insist on taking them because I love snorkeling. Locks in Scotland, off the coast of Cornwall, coast of Wales, wherever I find myself, you'll find me having a go at snorkeling. And what drives me is this desire to see something spectacular. So wherever I am, I have a good idea of what one of the really interesting things to see would be. And so I put my fins on, put my mask on, I dive in, and I start swimming around looking for that thing. Now, 
as you're doing that, you will see all sorts of other amazing things. You'll see some kelp forests. You might see some incredible crabs, lots of fish. There's lots and lots of cool stuff to see. But usually I've got a particular thing in mind that I'm hunting for. If I don't see it, it doesn't stop me strapping on my fins and jumping in the water again the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Every time I go out, I go out with this hope I'm going to see something. And so on this holiday last week, I did exactly the same thing. Strapped on my fins, jumped in the water, saw some cool stuff. Um, these particularly crazy red crabs that can jump from rock to rock. Absolutely spectacular. But as I was swimming around, saw some nice stuff, got out of the water. But as I say, the next day, strapped my fins on, jumped in again. And Abby and I followed a green turtle right the way round the bay. Absolutely amazing. Stunning moment for me and for Abby. She called him Terry. Why Terry of all the names? Terry Pratchett, Turtle. Yeah, but she's not read that. Actually, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get into that with you all. <laughs> Great at you in. Um, the point is that I continue to have hope. So next time I go snorkeling, I'll continue to have hope. And seeing that has given me a little shot in the arm. That actually, yes, the cool stuff's out there. If I just keep going, I will get to see it again. And so I'll strap my fins on and I'll jump in again and again and again. And this is the thing about life and interacting with God and prayer and disappointments and hard times, is that ultimately our first response should be perseverance. You strap your fins on and you jump in. You keep going again and again and again. The monks in the Middle Ages had the answer to this sin of sloth or acedia or not caring, and they came up with stabilitas. Stabilitas is just perseverance. They say the antidote to chucking in the towel and giving up is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, talks about how perseverance leads to character and character to hope. Perseverance is that first step. When life is hard, when God doesn't seem to be answering the prayer, when the situation doesn't seem to be changing, we keep putting one foot in front of the other. We strap our fins on, we jump in. The second thing is we need to change our perspective. So one of the things I've learned to do when snorkeling is enjoy what I see when I see stuff. Rather than being crushingly disappointed I didn't see a green turtle every time I get in the water, I rejoice in the things I do see. I celebrate the underwater geology. I celebrate the plant life. I celebrate the fish I do see. I celebrate what is there that is worth celebrating. And that's a perspective shift. Because we can go through life complaining about what isn't rather than celebrating what is. And I think as followers of Jesus, as Christians, one of the key ways that we can get through tough times is to celebrate what is. To look for the good things. To see the celebrate the things worth celebrating. To see the things worth giving thanks for. And to give thanks to God for them. Which leads us to the third thing. That praise is a really important tool in tough times. When we least feel like it, it is praise that will lift our eyes from our situation and give us hope. It's praise that will lift our eyes from our situation and remind us of who God is. What he's like and what he's capable of doing. But I know there are some of us here today and life is really tough at the moment. You're finding things really, really difficult. And you struggle to do each of those things. Well, we had a testimony not that long ago about the fact that even though the person was struggling with each of those, the people around them in church were able to be that for them. 
they were, the people around them in church were the ones saying to them, you hang in there, keep going, hold on. The people around them were the ones going, yeah, I know that situation hasn't changed. I know you're facing a tough time over there, but look at that. You've got that brilliant family. You've got that amazing situation. You've seen God do that in the past, and we're confident that he'll do it again in the present. And so there's something about the way together we can hold each other up. We can help each other keep on keeping on. And when I was thinking about our church and the area around us, it reminded me that um, there was a period when I first started working for the church when I was finding it really, really hard. I went from working for a charity to coming to work for the church and discovering what's actually going on behind many of the doors on the estate around us, in the communities around us, in the lives of the families around us, and seeing how much pain and hurt and struggle there was. Because that's the thing, before that, I'd been able to kind of blissfully float along on the surface. But the danger is when you then get a bit deeper into what's going on in people's lives, you find all sorts of stuff is going really hard for people. And so I found it really, really tricky. And I remember talking to Marion about it, that ultimately... I had got to a point where actually I was getting depressed. I was getting really, really down because these situations were so bleak, so difficult. But one of the things that helped me get out of that was this reminder of what God has done and is doing. It was that sense of, okay, God, I'm not seeing the transformation in the communities the way I would love to see it. I'm not seeing the number of people come to faith I would love to see, but I am seeing transformation in that person's life. I am seeing that person come to faith. And it was remembering those things that kept me going. I think one of the challenges in church life sometimes is I can't tell you some of the stories because the people it affects are here today. But I could tell you all sorts of incredible stories about the way God has impacted people's lives through the work of this church, through our Sundays, through our midweek gatherings, through the things we do to bless the community. We are making a huge difference. And so when I think of that, when I think of the stories, the lives transformed, whether through the single parents fair, the food bank, or as I say, our Sunday services, it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Because it reminds me, if I keep strapping on my fins, if I keep jumping in, if I keep praying, caring for people, loving people, serving people, I will see God do some truly spectacular things. But I might also see him do a hundred small things along the way. So let us not give up. Let us not slip into that sin of despair and cynicism. Let's not be a cynical church that looks at the communities around us and the lives of people in our lives and say, nothing's ever going to change. There's no point. Let's not write off people. Let's not write off situations. Let's be a church that dares to hope, that dares to believe that God can make a difference and will make a difference. Amen. Father God, I just pray now for all of us, Lord, recognizing that cynicism is easy. That not caring in some ways is easy because then we don't have to do anything. Lord, would you prevent us from sliding down that path, Lord, and help us to hold on to, to hope. Lord, would we be a church full of Peters rather than Judas? Lord, would we give in to that belief, Lord? Would we hold on to that belief that what if? What if, Lord, you did answer that prayer? What if, Lord, you did do that thing in that person's life? What if, Lord, you did change something? And, Lord, help us to hold on to that hope, to be a church that's full of hope, not only for ourselves, but for the communities around us, for the people we meet, for our colleagues, for our families. Lord, would we continue to pray? Lord, I pray that for each of us, we would get into that habit of praying for situations 
and just keep praying for situations? Would we not give up? Would we be a church that is persevering in prayer for all sorts of different things as we hold on to the hope, Lord, that you alone can make a difference? In Jesus' name, amen.